Yeah, thank you very much. I have the word responsible there, but that's a good addition. Uh, thanks. I, I, in case you think my behaviour is slightly odd, uh, I don't. I can't see in front of me what's on there, so I shall be uh, spending a lot of time looking over my shoulder. I'm afraid. Okay, uh, this is something which uh, I talk about a lot, and I'm very uh, pleased to have the opportunity to discuss it again here. It's it's really really important, uh, and that is. In some sense, the, the second heading on this slide, you know, can you actually trust the research literature? Can you rely on articles that are published in uh, medical journals? Uh, I'm focusing on health research, uh, but, but the principles obviously uh, apply more widely. But, so, medical research, health research. So that's where I'm going to get to. Let me start with this quote from Richard Horton, who's the editor of The Lancet, uh, who said some years ago, uh, of course not in a journal, but in a newspaper, uh, can you trust the research published in medical journals? Mostly, I believe you can, but not always. And then he goes on to say that actually if you look carefully at published articles, sometimes they're not as uh, uh, strong as they may seem to be at first sight. And that's certainly my experience, that the more closely you read uh, an article, the more flaws you can detect. And this, uh, I, I often say that the people who most carefully read research articles are people conducting systematic reviews of the literature, and I'll come back to that point later. Uh, certainly they read them more carefully than peer reviewers, I feel. Here's a, just to get us going, is a uh, study published in uh, 2008 in Archives of Surgery, which is one of the leading surgical journals, uh, liver transplants, hepatitis C virus. In fact, it's not hepatitis C, but it's the second uh, element here. I'm interested in the, the, um, here, this business about the age of the donor of the liver. So if you're having a liver transplant, does it matter how old the donor was? Uh, does that affect your chances of a good outcome? Uh, survival of the transplanted liver, survival of the patient. And that's what this study was about. And if you read... In the red box, the first red box says no difference was demonstrated in short or medium term patient or graft survival in recipients of grafts from older donors. And the increasing use of marginal donors, which is an interesting term, including carefully selected older donors, does not seem to adversely affect short or medium term results and may be a source of additional organs. Well, clearly, if this is true, then that does follow. But is that true? Where are the actual results? And they're not there. All it tells us is that no difference was demonstrated. And I'm always very suspicious when I see such opaque writing. But of course, this is the abstract. We can go to the journal article itself and see what it says. And if we do that, we well, before we do that, sorry, before we do that, um, this story uh, may not seem major news, but it was picked up by quite a few press agencies. This is Reuters. As you see, liver transplants from elderly donors are safe. I don't think that's what the paper said, but that's what they say. And this one says exactly the same, which makes me think that's what the press release said. And this one, which is uh, quite amusing because they actually get the story completely wrong, patients over age 60 do well after liver transplantation, which is a completely different notion. This is now the age of the recipient, and we're talking about the age of the donor. Minor difference, you know. Why should you worry about that? So... Um, yeah, and so that's from that page, which is clearly not correct. But this is, if we go back to the paper, they did a multivariable analysis. 
They found age being more than 60 was not statistically significant. Uh, the hazard ratio is three. In other words, the best estimate is that if your donor was over 60, you're three times as likely uh, not to survive. Uh, but the confidence interval is extremely wide. And the reason for that is they had hardly any donors aged over 60. It's a really stupid analysis. So here we have a very misleading. It's technically correct that it's not statistically significant. It's technically correct that they haven't dem demonstrated a difference. But it's very misleading. And many people just read abstracts. What's in the abstract is actually really important. But we all know that that's the part that researchers spend the least time writing, and it's usually done in a rush at the end. And the criticism of this paper was further that there are at least 25 other studies that have already demonstrated that older age in the donor is a bad risk factor. So not only have they, shall we say, misleadingly interpreted their own study, they completely failed to take account of what's already known. And so I think altogether this is an example of a very... Uh, bad piece of reporting and note, you know, I show you the, the websites, the press releases the, the, you know, the coverage to show that it does matter, these things get out there it's quite possible that uh, people will be influenced in their subsequent behaviour by this sort of research finding, it's not just randomised trials, which I'll come on to that influence clinical practice so let's move on to a randomised trial, this is Promotion and provision of drinking water. Now, that's a fantastic low-tech intervention uh, to prevent overweight. And the idea here, you're thinking that's odd, uh, the idea here is that if you give kids free drinking water, they won't drink Coke and other uh, proprietary... Can I say that? Um, <laughs> they won't drink, um, you know, uh, manufactured, very uh, unhealthy drinks. That's the notion, and therefore they might lose weight. Um, as you see, it's in paediatrics. Many of you will know that's a top journal in paediatrics. But this is not a top trial. In fact, this isn't a trial at all. It's certainly not randomised, despite what it says in the title. You don't need to read the detail of this slide, but this is a flow diagram showing from assessment at the top to analysis at the bottom on the left, the intervention group on the right, the control group. And you can see that the two flow diagrams do not touch, they don't intersect. They've basically done two separate studies. Um, so they've taken, um, you can read this, but basically they took schools in two cities, Dortmund and Essen, and they allocated Dortmund to receive the intervention and Essen not to. The randomization is not present, but there is random sampling of schools within each city. And they have confused random sampling with random allocation, which perhaps is excusable, but you would think that the peer reviewers and editors might have spotted that. Um, so here's an example. Beware. Just because it says it's a randomised trial, it isn't. And this is a fairly worthless piece of work, scientifically, even uh, if uh, uh, it's uh, you know, a good question, because we don't know if these two schools are comparable in the first place. Sorry, these two cities. Maybe they are, but we don't know. Okay. So, good research reporting is a vital element of good research. It's not something we take or leave. If it's not properly reported, it's not good research. That's one of my messages to you. So, complete, accurate, and transparent reporting is, in, in, is an integral part of doing responsible research, or doing research responsibly, 
And, and here's a quote from the International Council for Science. It doesn't sound very convincing, but that's what it says. Um, All scientists have a responsibility to ensure that they conduct their work with honesty and integrity and so on. And notice, ensure that methods and results are reported in an accurate, orderly, timely and open fashion. And the scientific article, when it's published, the studies I've just shown you, that's all that you have. There's no other evidence about how that study was done other than what's in that research. Well, there is evidence, but it's not available. In the public domain, all that you have available is that single research article. And therefore, it has to be complete and honest and... Uh, well, complete and honest, really. Um, so there should be sufficient information in there to allow a full evaluation by the reader of what's in there. And, and that they can then make use of those findings if they so wish. So, uh, so as I say, research should be reported fully and accurately, but we, we know this doesn't happen. I've given you two cases. Well, actually, the second example I've given you is very well reported. It's just bad science. So it's an illustration of the fact that good reporting and good science don't always go together. You can have bad reporting of good science and you can have good reporting of bad science. And I gave you an example of each of those just now. Um, but clearly, if you have inadequate reporting, if you're reading an article, I'm sure many of you have had this experience of reading an article and not really scratching your head saying, well, what did they do here? Did they, did they do... Is it, there's often a key piece of methodology that you would have expected researchers to have used, but they don't mention it. And you have to guess. Well, that's not right, is it? You shouldn't have to guess. Uh, and so we've concluded, really, that... Um, Inadequate reporting impedes the adequate uh, uh, the judgment of, of whether a piece of work is, is reliable and therefore many articles are simply not fit for purpose. They should be written for the benefit of the reader, not for the benefit just of the authors. So what should be in a report? Of, well, here's a, here's a quote from the International Committee of Medical Journal editors who say, describe statistical methods with enough detail to enable a knowledgeable reader with access to the original data to verify the reported results. Now, I'm a statistician. I think that's fine. Um, I have uh, quoted this for very many years. Um, however, it's odd because, really, the same principle should apply to all other aspects of research study. You know, the selection of the participants, the de definition of the characteristics of those participants, the interventions used, the outcomes measured, and so on. And they don't say that, which is rather odd. Nope. Right, and, and as a point of principle, I have at the bottom here this notion that a, a, a goal, and it's very hard to achieve, but the goal should be that there's enough information in the article to allow someone to repeat that study, at least in principle. I know very rarely is it actually done, but in principle, someone ought to be able to do the study again from what you've put in your paper. I would have that as an aspiration at least. So poor reporting is, is when these things are not met. So mainly it's when key information is missing or it's incomplete or it's ambiguous, uh, either in the methods or in the results section in particular. By and large, I'm focused mostly on methods and results. So there are issues about introduction and discussion in articles, but mainly we're talking about the methods and honest reporting of results. There are other things, though, apart from information. There is the issue of um, interpretation. I gave an example already where that could be misleading. 
and, and a particular issue which I shall describe in a moment about selective reporting. And there are some other issues as well, which, are, you know, which I won't go into. So here's an example of... Um, well, here's just another example. This is a randomised trial. This is a trial, as you see, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which some people think is the best medical journal. It's simply the one with the highest impact factor. It's not the same thing. Um, so here's a trial of two treatments to uh, treat individuals who've collapsed out in the community somewhere, and the ambulance comes roaring up, and uh, basically they have to resuscitate them, and they give them one of these two substances, and the objective is to get the patient to hospital alive. Uh, you might prefer it to be to get the patient out of hospital alive, but uh, that was their objective. And um, there's the result that the odds ratio is 0.8, that's confidence interval, is not quite statistically significant, which obviously causes people a bit of grief. Uh, it shouldn't do, but that's how people often think. So this is a result that's, if you like, marginal. So that's the result. Um, again, those are the actual numbers, and you can see there are about 600 in each group. What they then did was that they split the patients into three subgroups, which I've shown here in blue, and the results separately, and they did three separate tests. They got three separate p-values, and you can see that one of these is statistically significant, this one here, and these two are, are nowhere near significant. And as a consequence, they then, um, shall we say, switched their allegiance to this result rather than the one that's now in grey at the top. And there are a lot of problems with that. Um, no, sorry. So firstly, the method section of this paper says nothing about any plan even to look at subgroups. The overall result, which I've just shown you, actually is never discussed in the text at all. It just appears in a table. Very strange. The whole results discussion abstract focus on this one subgroup, which is not the aim of the study. The aim of the study was to look at all the patients, not just this third of patients. Uh, and as you saw, there's a significant difference in one of those three subgroups. But what they're effectively doing is comparing these p-values and drawing a conclusion that uh, uh, because we've seen something in one group and not in another group, therefore, you know, it works here and it doesn't work there. And that's actually not the way to do statistics. And if you do a correct interaction test without going into what that is, just to see if there's any evidence that these three groups are different taken as a whole, actually, uh, there is no difference there. Those results are entirely consistent with chance variation across small groups within a larger trial. So here we have a paper published in you know, the most prestigious medical journal, making several, I think, important um, errors in, in basically trying to conjure a positive finding from a negative study. Now, actually, I would question whether it was a negative study. It was very marginal. And, and the idea that suddenly, if your data just push you over this threshold, you suddenly have an important positive study, and if it's just short, as this one was, that it's non-significant and doesn't show anything is completely ludicrous, but that seems to be the way that so much of the literature is, is conceived. So there are hundreds of reviews of the reporting of randomised trials and other types of study. This is just one. It's not meant to be representative. It's just an example of uh, a review of uh, research articles in chiropractic journals, but I could have taken dermatology or 
any other field really, and there are lots of reviews like this, they're all very similar in what they find. The percentages shown here in blue are the percentages of articles that did not provide key information. And you can see, um, uh, or at least all provided inappropriate information. But let's just look at the last one. So a quarter of them did what I've just shown you, produced conclusions which were not really supported by the results they, they found. There are literally hundreds of similar studies. We just published a review of 170 reviews of this type. So there are very many such studies. And the overall picture is quite bleak, um, whether you look whichever medical field you look in and indeed whichever journals you look in. And it does matter. Here's uh, a review of randomised trials of patients with HIV AIDS, the, the um, antiretroviral therapies, 49 trials. This is a study of adverse effects. Doctors and patients want to know about adverse effects as well as intended effects of interventions. Of these 16 trials, sorry, of these 49 trials, only a third reported all the adverse effects they'd encountered. Two thirds reported only selective adverse effects. As you see, some simply said they were reporting the ones that were most frequent. Some only reported those which were statistically significant, which is a particularly stupid thing to do because adverse effects are rare and there's, you know, that, that isn't the way to address adverse effects. And some simply said they were selected, which of course they were, but that doesn't tell you anything. Uh, and so these authors said these facts, this sort of reporting, obstructs their ability to choose a therapy based on current data. And, and they go on to, to say that authors and editors should ensure that reporting of trials follows the consult guidelines, which I'll talk about later, uh, for reporting harms. But basically, they're saying this is impeding their clinical practice and it's harming patients. Now, another misdemeanor, if you like, is, is what I call post hoc specification, where, whereby... Um, Rather than saying in advance what people are going to do with their data, they do the study first and then might do lots of analyses and then choose the one they like best. Now, I know you wouldn't do things like that, but that's what goes on out there. So um, choosing the analysis after looking at the data. And so there are lots of other analyses implied, but not reported. Uh, so any data-derived choice of that sort will be misleading and, and, and basically biased. And we have um, often no way of knowing that this has gone on. It's only when people tell you that they've done other things which they're not showing you that you know that. But if they do this and don't tell you, you can't know. Now, uh, this slide's intended to uh, illustrate something of that kind. This is from a study we published looking at um, trial protocols and comparing them to subsequent journal articles. Now, what's in the protocol is the blueprint for how you're going to do the study, so what you publish later should match what you said you were going to do. And what we found was this is a particular bit of work for the rehab others. This is looking at the statistical aspects. I'll just focus really on, um, if I can get this to work, yeah, here. Well, subgroup analyses. Now, I showed you subgroup analyses for the New England paper. Um, basically, if you look at the white bar, um, that's the number of studies for which there was a discrepancy between the publication and the protocol. It's 100%. Every 
one of these studies, and you, I'm afraid it doesn't actually have the sample size on here, and I'm trying to remember what it is. Um, 102 would be my best uh, memory on that. Okay, so basically all of the subgroup analyses in the articles were discrepant in some way from what the authors said they would do. And in fact, what you found was almost everything that was in the protocol was not published, and almost everything that was published was not in the protocol. Um, you, couldn't, you almost couldn't get a bigger mismatch of stated intentions and actual practice than that. Now, subgroup analyses are very suspicious anyway, but when you add to, to that that the um, uh, selective reporting of those, it's very bad. But there are other things in here which I won't go into which also are not, are not handled very well uh, in the sense that there are discrepancies between uh, the, the protocol and the publication. For example, here, in terms of how they handle missing data, you know, 80% of them did it differently in the paper from what they said they would do in the article, in the protocol. So there's growing evidence of uh, poor reporting. Uh, we have... Uh, a lot of um, unethical reporting practices, um, some of which I've touched on, some of which I haven't. So we have non-reporting or delayed reporting of complete studies. That's often called publication bias. It's not a very good term. It's non-publication bias. The bias comes from people not publishing their research because the results were uninteresting or some other reason. Uh, selective reporting of only certain outcomes. Uh, we have this as a real problem in randomised trials. Omission um, of key information about methods, confusing graphs. You might think that's the least of our problems given some of these other issues. Inadequate reporting of statistical methods and analyses and omissions and misinterpretation of results in the abstract. Those are just some examples of topics where there have been extensive reviews of publications and, and these are all evidence, they all have evidence to support them and there are many other things as well. Um, and just to take one specific example, a study done here by Paul Glasier and colleagues looking at descriptions of treatments in reports of randomised trials and systematic reviews, um, they basically found that the interventions could not be reproduced in half of these articles. So if you were a GP or another doctor who wanted to use the treatment, which had been shown to be uh, beneficial in, in a published report of a randomised trial, most of the time you couldn't do that because they didn't give you enough information about what the treatment actually was. So that's fairly obviously not good. Um, and then just to come back, uh, to selective reporting, which I mentioned before. This is a review we published um, looking for evidence, a review of studies that have looked at whether authors selectively report certain outcomes in randomised trials rather than all of them. Uh, and we actually found that um, studies reporting positive, i.e. statistically significant results, were more likely to be published which we know, but also outcomes that were statistically significant were more likely to be included in reports of published trials. But this is another thing. Again, comparing <coughs> publications and protocols, about half the studies actually had their primary outcome changed between the trial protocol and the trial publication. So now I'm not talking about minor issues about subgroup analysis. I'm talking about the focal point of a trial, which is the primary outcome. Half of these studies 
had at least one change between what they said they would do and what they said, sorry, what they said they had done. And one has to be very suspicious that this is, you know, selective reporting uh, based on knowing what the results are. Uh, so here's an example. This is a trial in neurology, which I can't identify for you. But the protocol said the primary outcome as a percent of patients with some score below three at one year. Turned out that was not statistically significant. But the publication said the primary outcome was whether the patient was dead or dependent at one year, which is somewhat different. That one is statistically significant. Now, there's nothing incorrect about this result. It's the context that's been taken away. That they have a lot of outcomes. They've chosen to say, this is what we set out to look at, and this is what we found. That's dishonest. So these results are both correct. I don't actually know if that one was in the article or not. Uh, I, I can't identify this trial because we had them anonymous. Or at least I had them anonymous. Okay, so this is another method, a message that... Uh, I'm focusing on trials, and my first example wasn't on a, a trial of the liver transplant thing. And, and basically, these are broad issues that cover all types of research. Um, there's a message in the title, very clear. Um, and they're talking about this particular example, the trial called FIS, Fraxiparine in Ischemic Stroke Trial, 312 patients, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, where it was very favourable for the active treatment. But a second trial, wonderfully called FISBIS, um, did not confirm that. It was a bigger trial, and it has never been published. It was presented at a conference. The abstracts, uh, actually you can't even get the abstract. Uh, it's uh, not on the journal's website, but it was presented, and, and it's never been published. 1998. And recently there was a review of all the trials in, in this field that have been conducted and never published, and it's very dismal reading. Okay, so uh, just a couple more examples. Um, so this is, you know about trial registries. Randomized trials now have to be registered on one of these big international registers. Well, that means you can compare what the authors put on their register with what's in their journal article. And that's what we did in this study. And we found, firstly, we found that about half of them were not adequately registered in the first place. And those that were adequately registered, 31% had discrepancies, important discrepancies in the outcomes which, you know, so now, rather than looking at one, one hidden document and one published document, we're looking at two published documents on the same trials, and, and it's quite clear that the discrepancies were being done to emphasise statistically significant results. So that's lying, basically. This is a quote from The Lancet, 2004. The idea of a drug's use being based on selective reporting of favourable research should be unimaginable. This is talking about uh, research on children. Changes are required at every level of the global healthcare infrastructure. Well, that's fine, good words. It's very easy to say that. This is one, you know, clearly one of the hardest things to implement. It's hard to implement change at one level, let alone every level. Um, but... You know, it's hard to say that anything particular has happened in six years since that was written. Uh, and I, I think that's quite a powerful image of, of uh, that, you know, about uh, drug choice for children being based on 
selective reporting. Uh, and, well, just briefly, this study we also published uh, earlier this year, looking at trials like that very first one I showed, sorry, the New England one, non-significant result. What we find, to cut, cut this brief, is, is that there is a lot of spin. People try to create a positive story from a negative finding. Um, and we classified spin in, in, a, in a rigid way, or reasonably rigid way, and this slide shows the percentage of places where we found uh, what we considered to be spin, and you know, nearly half of the papers had, had at least two sections of the main article which were trying to lead the reader to what we thought was a false conclusion. Um, now basically, most authors are looking for some way to turn this into a positive finding, presumably in order to enhance the chance of being published. Um, and this is a quote, the most familiar and common approach was to focus on statistically significant results for other analyses, such as within-group comparisons, secondary outcomes, or subgroup analyses. And as I say, the New England Journal is precisely an example of that, compounded by the fact that they did it in an invalid statistical way. So, you know, I hope you can see there's a huge amount of evidence here. I'm not just talking uh, theoretically. This, this is really the real world, and it's very depressing. Um, so poor reporting is a serious problem for systematic reviews. I touched on that at the beginning. Here's the first two quotes from the Cochrane Library. The first quote is talking about they couldn't judge whether these studies were done well or not because authors were simply not reporting you know, things like blinding or randomization, they, they simply weren't reporting how the study was done. And in some ways, this is almost worse that in a, a different review of 15 trials that were eligible, only four gave the data in such a way they could actually be used um, in, in that review for some sort of synthesis. So 11 of the 15 trials were unusable. I mean, that's, that's appalling. I, I like this as a positive quote recently on, on the BMJ. In my work as a systematic reviewer, it is such a joy to come across a clearly reported trial when abstracting data. The subtext here clearly is it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> if it did, he wouldn't have said that, or indeed she. So poor reporting means you can't assess the reliability of the individual studies. You, the methods may not be described properly. The findings, uh, sorry, and, and weaknesses may be, may be hidden. You can't know. You can't, therefore, do a proper assessment of a whole body of evidence on a particular theme, as, as would be the case in a systematic review. And clearly that must have a bad uh, influence, a bad knock-on effect, really, for other researchers who want to do similar studies for clinicians and patients. And I've touched on more than once examples where I think there are clear links to clinical practice. All the research that's in these reviews, the examples I've given and the thousands of studies in the other reviews I've alluded to, is peer-reviewed research. Now, so what does this tell us about peer review? Well, not, nothing terribly good, obviously. Um, it's difficult, we know that. Uh, it's not really... This doesn't prove that peer review doesn't do something useful. It's entirely plausible and likely that the stuff that doesn't get published is even worse than, than the ones which have been reviewed that were published. Uh, but generally, if you reject a paper, the only consequence is it will end up in someone else's journal. Um, so, uh, but it's clear reviewers and editors 
do not or cannot eliminate errors in, in the papers which they publish, either errors or, in particular, omissions. I'm much more concerned about omissions, in a way. If it's clear what people did, like the water, randomised trial of water, although it was labelled as a randomised trial, anyone who knows anything about randomised trials would very quickly see it. It wasn't a randomised trial. Well, anyone except the peer reviewer, of course. Uh, would see that. And, and, but what worries me more is, is where things are hidden, deliberately or, or quite probably um, inadvertently. Because actually, I think, uh, generally speaking, people aren't given much training in how to write research articles. They're certainly not given much training in how to peer review them, which is, come back to that point. Um, so you and other people as readers should not assume that just because a paper is published in the peer-reviewed journal, that it is methodologically sound. Peer reviewers are often more concerned with whether it's interesting, whether it's original, but not whether it's sound. Unfortunately, I believe many readers do make just that assumption. They assume that if it's in the Lancet, you can believe it. It's true. And, and we're all prey to those pressures, it's, especially when we haven't even got time to read the abstract, let alone the whole article. So, what can we do about that? Well, I think it's important that misleading papers can be identified. Um, and that means, well, actually, um, it means getting rid of them. And the way we get rid of misleading papers, really, is, is to have better reporting. And that's where I'm leading up to and what I'm going to talk about for the rest of this uh, talk. So here's a picture from left to right of a... Of a of the research process, if you like, and trying to consider what we can do to make things better. Um, on the left is research, moving to publication, dissemination and translation of findings into, into clinical practice. On the, there's a lot of guidance out there about how to do research. Uh, thousands of textbooks, probably thousands of research articles and, and senior colleagues should certainly have no shortage of material and there's quite a lot of material out there about how to write. Not how to write necessarily... Um, yeah, so how to lay out articles. There are many books on how to write. But they tend to focus on style, not content. And then journals have instructions to authors. That's what I to A means. Those focus very largely on process, again, not on content. So they'll have pages of information about how to lay out the references, but they won't tell you what information you should provide about your methods of analysis, to take one example. So what we're interested in doing here is, is to develop guidelines, some reporting guidelines, uh, to close that gap, to, to, to help people describe what they've done in their research so that the publications do act, are actually fit for purpose. Um, reporting guidelines specify uh, a minimum set of items that, that uh, you need to put in a paper to make it clear and transparent, an uh, account of what you did and what you found. That, that's what I say. What did you do? What did you find? It's not rocket science. It's very simple. Um, and obviously, um, there are particular areas in many research fields where there's a risk of bias coming in. You, there, most research does certain things to try to ensure that the answers you get are not biased by these factors. That's what needs to be included in the report. 
uh, sorry, in, a, in a clinical trial. Randomization is one of those. Blind assessment is another one. We want to know about those things in particular. In, in epidemiological studies, if you do a case control study, there are all sorts of issues about bias that you have to try to eliminate and avoid. Reporting guidelines generally are evidence-based, um, partly reflecting the sort of evidence I've shown you, and they tend to reflect consensus. And the benefits of using these guidelines will be improved reports of research, easier appraisal, therefore, by people reading those research reports. And basically also, uh, as a side issue, I think it would be easier to search the literature to find what you're looking for if things are properly labelled. Uh, the... Um, I went through my slides and updated them and very carefully uh, did, forgot to update this one and I will explain why. But basically, the consult statement, which I mentioned earlier, is an example of a reporting guideline. Some of you may know it. It's a guideline for reporting randomised trials. It was updated, however, in May this year and this slide doesn't reflect that because uh, that 22 should now say 25. But otherwise, I think the slide is correct. Um, so the idea is that there are 25 things which we think should be included in the reports of all randomised trials, and there's a flow diagram that describes patient progress through, this, through the trial. And um, as you see, the objective is, is pretty much what I said on the previous slide, to facilitate critical appraisal and interpretation of randomised trials. But there is a second objective, and that is really to make people more aware of what makes a good study. And to encourage, and in, in a sort of background way, to, to help people understand when they're designing studies what, what they should be doing to, to, to get good results. Unbiased, randomised trials is what we want. There, that's the old checklist, um, but the new one obviously will look very similar, and you're not intended to read that. Uh, and this is a flow diagram. Again, you're not intended to read that. But this, of course, is what the earlier flow diagram did not look like, with a branch in the middle where we randomised. There was no randomisation element in that water trial. Um, so uh, that enables us to see... This has proved extremely successful. It enables us to see where the patients who start in the study, where they get to, because invariably the numbers at the bottom here are different from the ones at the top, and it's nice to know how they disappeared, where they lost the follow-up, or did they have adverse effects, and, or what happened, whatever happened. Now, there are quite a few other reporting guidelines, uh, some of which you may have heard of. I've just mentioned three there, Prisma, Start, and Strobe, and you can see what they are. There are many others. Um, we know of something like 100. But most of these have had very limited impact, and that's really frustrating. These things exist, um, there has been largely passive dissemination. You basically, you produce one of these things and you publish it and you hope that people take some notice. And that's probably the standard way that researchers do things. Um, but actually we're now switching to try and be a bit more, um, I was going to say aggressive, that's probably not the right word, um, active, um, to try to persuade uh, journals and other groups to, to treat this more seriously. Because certainly at the moment many journals, hundreds of journals, support consort, but they don't enforce it. So we set up, um, well, it says 2006, uh, time flies, the Equator Network, 
The Equator stands for Enhancing the Quality and Transparency of Health Research. And this project is to try to make people aware of these issues, aware of the problems with the literature, aware of this resource of reporting guidelines that can help them write better papers. Um, so this is why we initiated the project. That really repeats what I've already says, said. Um, uh, there are actually other reporting guidelines that are not very good, and one of our current projects is to try to develop uh, some guidance there as well. But this is the main aim, to improve the reliability of health research literature by promoting transparent and accurate reporting of health research. And there are many stakeholders here. I mean, basically everyone who's interested in improving the quality of research, and indeed anyone who might end up being treated uh, by somebody who depends on that research, which basically is everyone. Uh, we have, I won't read all the words on here, but we have major goals. You can find them on our website, which I will show you in a minute. Um, but we have an internet-based resource centre, which is our most um, obvious uh, achievement. We're interested in developing and helping uh, disseminate robust reporting guidelines. We are initiating education and training program, which I suppose this talk could be seen to be part of, but we're trying to move towards online training and, and, and workshops. Um, we are very interested in trying to improve the implementation of these. As I said, they do no good if they're just sat there in the medical literature and no one takes any notice. Um, and we're involved in regularly trying to well, audit the quality of what's published in the hope that we will see improvements. And we have seen some improvements, but we're still way, way short of where we wish to be. So that's a, a screenshot from our homepage this morning, um, and probably won't be direct relevance to you, but it interests that we recently launched a Spanish-language version of this website. Uh, So we have, on the right here, you can go quickly to different, you know, if you're an author or an editor or even someone who wants to develop a reporting guideline, there are different parts of the website relevant to you. And the key thing, perhaps, is this page, which is the library for, uh, of basically of reporting guidelines. And you can go down uh, here and find the, the sort of area which might be most relevant. And there's a large number of other issues uh, where we have resources as well, including guidance on scientific writing. Um, and you can go straight to some of the most commonly accessed guidelines. Um, so we need to shift the culture of reporting. Um, and that's something that's really hard to do. Changing people's behaviour, especially when it doesn't seem to be in their own personal interest, uh, is extraordinarily hard. Um, so all these parties really need to, to take this more seriously. Um, I think um, scientists, certainly research organisations, whoever employs you, whoever funds you, um, and regulators, medical journals, um, they are, journal editors are very supportive of this sort of thing, but their resources are limited and they are dependent on their peer reviewers. Um, so we're, this is what we're working towards, is the idea that, that accurate, complete and transparent reporting is an essential part of research practice. 
but achieving that is very difficult. And, and I've touched on various things. Um, I think there are few incentives, really, for most people. And further, there aren't any disincentives associated with publishing bad research papers. Uh, and whether we can find some way to change that, I don't know. But that's, that is the fact at the moment. So we are trying to, to do various things. Um, and, and these are not things which just we're trying to do. These are things that need to be done more generally. Um, journals in particular could have better instructions to authors and indeed to peer reviewers. And we're currently doing a study uh, of what journals actually ask their peer reviewers to do. Um, we think they should specify specific reporting guidelines and link to them and our Equator website from their instructions, and many of them now do that. Um, this is um, a quote from a journal's website um, arguing that a major incentive for authors to report their research well is, is to make the peer reviewers work easier, which may in turn make publication more likely and perhaps hasten the process. Well. If that were true, that would be an incentive. Uh, that's simply speculation. Um, if we could show that writing your paper well does lead to uh, a greater chance of acceptance and quicker publication, that would be an incentive. It would be nice if we could do that. Um, and journals, uh, well, there are other things here which I, I think I won't go into. So I think research organisations and funders have a role to give clear guidance to the people they support on the importance of these issues, uh, and training. Where's the training? Um, so this sort of series of lectures is an example of training, I hope, but it's informal, of course, it's voluntary. Um, but one thing we can do is, is make people aware of the available resources, such as the Equator website. If you, you certainly can't expect people to use something if they're not aware that it exists. So as a bare minimum, we can, we can all try to... Uh, make people aware. Uh, and what we're doing on Equator is our contribution, really. We have this freely available, up-to-date resource, um, the Library for Health Research Reporting. As I said, we have our educational program. We, are, we sometimes run courses for editors and peer reviewers a few times a year. Um, we, are well, we are developing uh, courses for young research professionals and research students, and I think... Uh, I have, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm going to run one of those here in Oxford somewhere. Um, clearly, we, we're trying to uh, get journals to take this seriously. Uh, something else we're doing, we're involved, or I, I'm involved and some other people in developing guidelines for writing research protocols. So the Spirit uh, Initiative uh, is actually trying to improve the way people conceptualise their study in the first place, to write, write, you know, think about these issues when you're actually planning your research. Um, and um, promoting good reporting and specific reporting guidelines, that's very much what, what Equator does. So, I think this is the last slide. So, for those of you writing research articles, I would say the key thing is to... to do so remembering that you're writing not simply to add another paper to your list of publications. You're actually writing for readership. People have the potential to get value from your paper. So take advantage of the resources which I've mentioned and write the paper in such a way that it's actually comprehensible, 
and, and um, fulfills the sort of criteria which I've outlined to you. And then, of course, with your other side of your activities, when you're reading papers, do that with great care. Just because it's in a good journal, just because it's passed through the rigours of peer review, which may seem tough to you when you're an author, it's quite clear that peer review lets through a lot of really ropey stuff. So um, don't assume that authors have done something if, uh, if they don't say they've done it. And watch out for the possibility of selective reporting. Okay, thank you.